0: This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholds on Bloomberg Radio.
1: This week on the podcast, Chris Whalen, chairman of Whalen Global Advisors and an old fishing buddy and friend, Chris knows more about the details and back offices of banking and mortgages and credit than just about anybody I know who's not currently running the Federal Reserve. He has a fascinating background and family history. Uh, it was through Chris that I got to meet Paul Volcker. It was through Chris that I really learned a lot about how the Federal Reserve works, how the mortgage market works, how the securitization uh, market works decades ago. In fact, when I was researching uh, Bailout Nation, a lot of his work found its way into some of the endnotes uh, in that book. He is really a wealth of knowledge when it comes to uh, this area of finance. And if you are remotely interested in securitized products, mortgages, banking, uh, and banking analysis, uh, you're going to really enjoy this conversation. So with no further ado, my conversation with Christopher Whalen. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on
0: Bloomberg Radio.
1: It is still a shelter and home edition. And for this week, I brought a very special guest, Christopher Whalen. He is the chairman of Whalen Global Advisors and has a long and deep background in the financial sector, working at such firms as Bear Stearns and as a researcher for the Federal Reserve. Chris Whalen, welcome to Bloomberg.
2: Hey. Barry, what a pleasure!
1: So let's start out with a little bit of your background. I know you as a bank analyst and uh, M and A specialist, but let's go back to when you were at Bear Stearns. What were you doing at Bear, and how is that related to your work at the Federal Reserve?
2: Well, I I grew up in Washington. My parents, Joan and Richard Whalen, were some of the most interesting Republicans. Uh, operating in in the town and it was a democratic town in those days barry the democrats still ran everything um but that's how i got to know fed chairman people like paul volcker arthur burns alan greenspan they all came to mom's parties in fact if you didn't get an invitation to jones christmas party there was something seriously wrong with you so i grew up in this very political household went to college went to villanova and then when i got out i worked for jack kemp for a couple of years on Capitol Hill, really learned the right to Two brilliant editors used to just pound us because we had to report on different committees. And I eventually ended up moving to New York, and I was a management trainee at the, at the Fed in New York. I worked in uh, bank supervision first for uh, Jerry Minahan and Bill Rutledge, and then I went across the street and worked in foreign exchange for uh, Gretchen Green and Terry Checky one of the great uh, Fed officers of his age, he he was responsible for foreign. So all the other central banks would talk to Terry. Uh, In fact, he was probably the only person in the building they would talk to. So that's kind of where I got my start. And then I went to Bayer in London, fixed income trading and sales, Uh, worked with David Setchum and Joey Calvo and a whole bunch of great people who are now at R.W. Pressbridge, special situation uh, fixed income shop here in New York. So that's really so, where I started in credit, and I had to learn about banks. Obviously, I went to night school for accounting. And it was very funny in those days because New York was empty, Barry. In the 80s, there was no one here, you know, especially in well, no the early 80s there. for sure. Oh, God. Yeah. We used to go to the Raccoon Lodge, and there would be bikers parked up and down the street, you know, two blocks from City Hall, middle of the night, and there'd be no one there.
1: No one. That, that's amazing. That that's amazing. You You mentioned Jones Parties. I recall a party of yours, I believe it was election night in 2008, and that was the only time in my life I got to meet Paul Volcker, was sitting in your kitchen telling jokes about the Bush administration with (laughs) tall Paul. The fact that I got Paul to laugh is one of the highlights of of that decade for me. Yeah, he he,
2: he was a great, great guy, and he did have quite a sense of humor. He was a member of the Lotus Club, so I did get to see him a couple of times there uh, before his passing. But he was just a a, a lovely man. There were times we disagreed on things, but I always came around to his point of view because he he was such a real guy, and he was grounded in in reality. He he reminds me a lot of what my dad said to me years ago. He said, Chris, the task of this generation is to pass the bubble on to the next generation intact. (laughs) And that's what Paul Volcker did. I asked him once about the banks, I said, Paul, why did you let, this in 2017, uh, which is where that picture I put on Twitter came from, and uh, we had gone to lunch in this little cafeteria right there in Rockefeller Center, where he used to go and, you know, get his lunch every day. It was very modest, very nice, uh, and we're sitting there and I said, look, why did you let the banks do off-balance sheet finance? All of these bad things happened subsequently, right? And he said, well, they were broke. What else was I going (laughs) to (laughs) do? So, you know, he was just such a a sweet and I think very committed public servant. And I always respected that about him. But he was a family friend, which is why I never asked him for anything.
1: What about some of the other um, Fed chairmen that you had relationships with? (laughs) What can you tell us about Arthur Burns or Alan Greenspan or anybody else on the uh, FOMC that that stands out in your mind?
2: Arthur Burns was a very sweet, uh, self-effacing man um, who my dad got to know because Pop was a speechwriter for Richard Nixon and he left uh, the Nixon campaign just as Nixon was going to the White House. So you know, because of my father's press credentials and connections and everything else, and also because of the fact he was a Republican, again, in a Democratic-dominated town, um, he quickly got to know people like Burns and Greenspan and became kind of their political counselor in a sense, because the decision by both men to get into the Fed and get deeply involved in in national economic policy was a very momentous one, because it meant a lot of compromises for both. you know, I don't remember Burns as well because I was so young. Uh, but Greenspan was, you know, always a, a, a long uh, family friend, and he, he had gotten to know my pop when pop was working with Ronald Reagan, uh, when you know during the '76 uh, cycle when Ford eventually got the nomination. Ray, Greenspan was trying to figure out when he was going to go to the Council of Economic Advisers and then end up at the Fed, of course, and that was also a very political decision, Barry, because you know the the Fed is the most political entity in Washington, by far. Just to say the and very Greenspan least, Greenspan was very astute political analyst, not a great economist, but uh, really, really sharp judge of politics. So. You know, it, it was a fascinating thing for uh, a young man to have access to. I would sit on the stairs in our house in uh, Fort Sumner, Maryland, up, uh, off of Massachusetts Avenue, and just listen to these parties uh, and meet the people sometimes, because we were all very little. Uh, but as we grew up, these people were part of our lives, and we were kind of Washington insiders. That's what <laughs> Washington was like in the 80s and the 90s. You could actually get stuff done. People would talk to one another. They would have dinner little, and drinks, <laughs> you know. A little a like little different than today. Yeah. I, I think we have to restore civility and thereby communication in our public life. That would life go a there. long way.
1: That would go a long yeah. way. I, I have to follow up with one question. You mentioned Fed chairman making compromises. Were you talking philosophically or politically or across the board?
2: I think it's across the board. You you cannot survive as Fed chairman without the, at least the acquiescence of the White House. And, you know, Trump uh, berates Powell and and says things in public. But as Judy Shelton said, I think so wonderfully, at least he does it in public. Uh, What Richard Nixon (laughs) did to Arthur Burns was criminal. Uh, His anti-Semitism and his just nastiness uh, was, was awful. And, you know, Reagan, on the other hand, was very affable. Uh, my dad got Paul Volcker reappointed, and it was a little cabal between him and Paul Laxalt, the great senator. Uh, mm-hmm. One weekend, the Laxalts and the Reagans were at Camp David, and my dad gave Paul the, uh, Paul Laxalt the phone number and said, have Reagan call Volcker. And it, it happened. And then my dad said to me later, I put this in inflated, this is how stuff gets done in Washington. (laughs) Just a phone call
1: from a gathering at Camp David.
2: Yeah. And and, you know, barrel sprinkle was being pushed very, very hard by Don Regan, the former chairman of Merrill Lynch and uh, dad won. So, you know, kudos to Paul Laxalt.
1: Let's talk a little bit about debt and building the American dream. So how have mortgages, over time helped to build the American dream.
2: Mortgages, you know, are are frequently uh, cited as evidence of the American dream, the ownership of a home, the homestead, right? Uh, But the actual marketplace goes back to the depression, when the government got involved in the the mid and late 1930s uh, and created uh, Fannie Mae, which was an agency that would go out and buy loans, long term loans and hold them, uh, and they funded these operations by issuing government-guaranteed debt. Uh, before that, you couldn't get a 30-year mortgage. You couldn't get a 10-year mortgage, Barry. My my grandmother Vera actually lost her house in the early part of the last century because they had a balloon. In other words, you had small payments initially, and then you owed everything. And that That's didn't right. work there very was, well.
1: There was no such thing as a 30-year fixed mortgage. It was no. interest-only payments, and then you would— If you were a a borrower in good standing at the end of the loan period, you would roll it over into a new one and start all over. If you weren't making principal payments, you still owed exactly what you owed when you began. That's
2: right. Correct. And and really, if you work in the mortgage business and in the world of fixed income, you understand that we don't really have 30-year mortgages. We have 30-day mortgages with an option to renew, which is held by the homeowner. And mm-hmm. so every month, the investor has to try and figure out how many of the loans in a given pool, which is how they, they do bond, uh, mortgage bond issuance, are going to prepay, refinance, sell the house, default, whatever. And it's that optionality that makes mortgages so interesting and also so treacherous. It's a huge asset class. It's almost $12 trillion now. Wow. But interestingly, it didn't grow for 10 years after the crisis. It was flat. no no surprise there yeah but it's interesting barry because sociologically and in in terms of you know the baby boom and everything else when you study how the mortgage industry has behaved over time in the 80s crashed and burned destroyed all the savings and loans the 90s was kind of flat now there were fringe products there specifically our friends at citibank who decided they could do no doc no income verification mortgages for self-employed right That's where subprime mortgages came from was in the 90s. But then they got out because the results were so horrific and they did this in the U.S. (laughs) and other countries too. When I was working at the Fed, I was in charge of overseeing Citibank's foreign adventures in places like Japan. Well, in Japan, they have no credit information on individuals. So someone could default and just disappear. And they did. (laughs) So,
1: you know- What's the the length of mortgages in Japan, Chris? Oh, God.
2: Uh, They can be quite long. They can be multi-generational. Like 100-year
1: mortgages are not unheard of?
2: No, no, because the rates are very low. And so what happens is if a young couple is getting married, the family will typically pool their resources, go buy them a house, and if they need debt, they'll pay it off as fast as they can. You know, you may have heard of uh, stated income loans. They're very sure. popular uh, out on the west coast among the Asian community, Koreans, Chinese, and very typically, these loans perform great, even though they don't fit in the box for you know Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, you make kind of loans. They're they're typically private. The, the the communities hate debt, so you know if a young couple starts a family, they'll they'll pay it down in five years. Really? So all of that has to be factored into your analysis as an investor if you're buying these loans, right? You know, uh, like the last few years, because of the bond market volatility, all of the mortgage loans that were made in 18 and 19 are prepaying because they're all in the money now. They could all refinance. And I think over the next year or two, you're going to see the Fed gently step on the bottom of the yield curve and force that front uh, coupon down for both government loans and, and Fannie and Freddie loans. And we'll see 3% mortgages in this country, I think, by so- the end of the year. Which so means you talk have ab- a Ginny May 2 out there. You can have a 2% coupon.
1: Wow. Let, let's talk about that a second because if I remember pre crisis, the average length of a mortgage was about seven years, meaning people typically would move into a house, their starter home, have the first kid outgrow the house, and by year seven, they're selling and trading up to the three bedroom split. And that was fairly typical. It, Are those Mm -hmm. numbers about what you recall, and what does that look like today?
2: Yeah, it would be seven years or even shorter during Mm -hmm. periods of very high uh, labor market mobility, for example. Um, You also have the speculative component back in the 2000s, a lot of second homes, which would flip quite quite fast. Today, average lives are 10-plus years. In fact, the servicing portfolios that are being created right now, Barry— with refinancings are going to be worth a lot of money, because they're going to have average lives over 10 years. Whereas the older strips, like I said, bonds that were sold, you know, one and two years ago with much higher coupons, they're going to prepay. And so the average life of those pools, it already has, it's shrinking down to like three years. (laughs) And if you're an investor and you paid, you know, 104 for the bond, and you're getting redemptions back at par, that's kind of painful
1: that's a loss. So yeah. so we don't we don't really love predictions here. We kind of frown on predictions around these parts, but what I'm hearing from you is that you think as part of the coronavirus pandemic response, the mm-hmm. Fed is going to encourage another wave of refinancing by keeping part of the curve low, not inverted, but low and flat so that it becomes attractive for homeowners to refinance? Did I hear that right?
2: Oh yes, I think you're gonna see what we call streamlined refis that don't require appraisals. In other words, you have an existing borrower. You already know who Uh they are, right? You're lowering their costs. You're typically doing a rate refi rather than having them take cash out. But that's okay. If you lower the household's expenses, you're improving the credit. It's gonna have a lower probability of default. And overall, what you want is to get cash into the economy right now, right? Right. So, yeah, I, I think the Fed would love to see a gradual surge in refis because, you know what? They have to buy the paper, Barry. Uh, their mortgage portfolio is going to prepay in the next six months. It's like a trillion dollars. So just to replace that and keep their balance sheet stable in terms of you know, monetary policy purposes, they're going to have to buy a lot of paper. And I think mm. the predominant uh, source will be the government market, Ginny Mae. Uh, we've had some problems with the uh, Fannie Freddie component for the last couple of weeks while they're a regulator. Mark Calabria has figured out what to do. But I think the good news this week is he's figuring it out. We're we're helping him. Um, so hopefully the whole mortgage complex is going to have a solution to both the forbearance with the COVID-19 and then the resulting defaults. I, I think a third or more of the people who look for forbearance on their mortgages, Barry, are going to ultimately default.
1: Let's talk a little bit about something that is in the news today, namely the government's Paycheck Protection Program, better known as PPP. How are banks handling this? Who's doing this well and who is not? The banks,
2: like all of us in the world of finance, had this this CARES Act uh, legislation thrown at us, there was no guidance on how we were to implement it, and in many cases it was unfunded. So for example, the entire mortgage space, whether it's government-guaranteed or private, has to figure out how to deal with consumers who've been told they don't have to pay their loans. And this really only applies to government-guaranteed loans, but everything, autos. You know, you name it, the rent, whatever. So everybody thinks they got a free pass, but it's not. Now, with small businesses, there was a window there where you could go to your bank, typically the bank you use for the business and payroll, and you could get a loan from them. And if you agreed to keep your people on, it would eventually be forgiven. There's only so much money, though. So most of the small business people I know who have tried to access these credits have found out that the banks have already run through the money and i think what's you know, important to realize is that for a lot of small businesses it's better to just put your people on unemployment and keep their health care active because in many uh-huh. cases especially you know at the lower level employees it's a race <laughs> so they they can stay home with their families you keep their health insurance intact and you just basically wait And I think that's what a lot of small businesses have decided to do.
1: So we've heard about a lot of smaller community banks that were very effective at processing these PPP applications, but less so for the big money center banks. Is that simply a function of employee-to-client ratio? I mean, if you're Wells Fargo um, or Bank of America, you have a bajillion clients. But if you're a smaller community bank somewhere in the Midwest – I got to think it's pretty easy for them to process those applications quickly.
2: That's correct, Barry. The the larger institutions have trouble with processing anything out of the ordinary. Um, in, in essence, there are no economies of scale in banking, right? So the little community bank, even the regionals, are typically more flexible. They can handle inquiries at the branch level, and they can make decisions. Uh, because they have a flatter organization. The big banks are pyramids, and they do this intentionally to keep them from causing trouble. So essentially, the largest banks are very inefficient by design. And that's huh. why when you call them, they have this very narrow bottleneck of capacity, for example, to take calls, because you have to actually talk to someone if you want to get one of these loans. And they have some... Uh, online presence, but remember they had to put all this up in a matter of days, and banks don't That's move amazing. that quickly. See, non-bank companies, because they're flat, they move very quickly, and smaller banks tend to be much more nimble than the larger institutions.
1: So, so for these banks, how does participating in the PPP plan benefit them? I, it certainly doesn't hurt if your clients can survive, but is no, there any incentive possible. for the banks to do something? Oh, yeah, they make a
2: couple points up front, gain on sale on the loan. Mm -hmm. No credit risk. It works. They're they're all covered credits. It's like a small business administration loan. Mm -hmm. The the banks have a nice little bump in the front because they typically will sell those loans. Or they can keep them in portfolio if they want. But they have a number of incentives to to do the business, believe me.
1: What kind of bank was best positioned for this COVID-19 crisis? Was it the big money center banks? Was it the investment banks? Was it the regional banks or the smaller community banks? Who do you believe is going to come out of this um, as having not only survived, but thrived?
2: I think first and foremost, you look at J.P. Morgan simply because of size. You know, a trillion plus in core deposits on one side of the business. and a pretty robust capital markets business and also derivatives on the other side it's about half and half uh... wells bank of america likewise big islands of liquidity more than a trillion dollars in core deposits the ones with more consumer exposure like capital one city uh... they've been getting beaten up just for that reason you know credit is the concern and in the investment banks interestingly morgan stanley during the sell-off was the outlier in the whole group, their credit default swaps were trading, you know, more than 200 basis points over the curve, which is a lot. Uh, I'll give you an example. Before the crisis and the sell-off, kind of beginning of February, most of these banks were at 40, 50 bps over the curve for five-year credit default swap insurance. So they, they all widened. And Goldman, Morgan Stanley, you know, American Express, they got beat up. But today, Amex is still trading at three times buck. It's a premium property because it's the best-performing large bank in the United States. Even though it's small, it's only about 200 billion in assets. So I would tell you the consumer exposure is the real pain point, but you're going to see pain on the on the institutional and the commercial side too. I think low losses I, for banks. It's going to be across the board, Barry.
1: If I recall correctly, Capital One is now the largest credit card issuer in the country. Is that right?
2: Yes, they rolled up several uh, monolines, you know, 10, 15 years ago. And it's primarily a credit card issuer, pretty high cost of funds, but they're very efficient. They've gotten into some other areas that got them in trouble, like oil, which was kind of surprising. I I think people were taken aback by that. But the reality is, you know, these monolines don't do so well. They need to broaden their business. And Capital One has not been very good at Main Street banking. They bought a couple of retail banks, for basically for the funding. Um, but they haven't developed those businesses. In fact, if anything, they've shrunk them down. So they have consumer, which is very nice, very high spreads. And then they have a capital markets business that uh, unfortunately has been in the headlines recently.
1: <laughs> so you mentioned roll-ups and some M&A activity. I have to assume that in 2020, that's completely dried up. Or, or is this still things happening behind the scenes? Well,
2: I think for now, yes, because valuations are going to be difficult until we get through the, the peak of credit costs. It's hard to value a bank if you don't know what the next three to four quarters worth of credit looks like. Um, so we got to get through that. And there are other assets on bank balance sheets that are also, you know, big question marks right now. Um, and I think- you know, Once we get through that. Well, think about servicing portfolios for all kinds of loans. Typically, mm-hmm. those are annuities, right? You get paid a little fee every month. It's pretty nice. But right. because of the uncertainty regarding all this forbearance, whether it was legally authorized or not, right, the regulators are forcing all lenders, even private lenders, to give forbearance. You know, Ally just reported earnings to a big auto lender. They basically had to extend 120 days. Of loan forbearance on what are private loans, the bondholders will pay for this. Yeah, wow. So you know the regulators essentially threatened all of these non bank lenders who operate outside of the government guarantees space and said you must provide forbearance. So it's just you know coercion on a national scale, and uh, they'll get through it. We have to figure out what those loan portfolios are worth now. How many of the people who ask for help are going to get back on track?
0: At
1: So what do you think will end up happening with all these lenders who suddenly have a four-month hole in their revenue, um, or at least their cash flows, they're still owed that money, it's just kicked down the road a little bit?
2: In theory, yes. If the consumer cures, and for example, and this is private, by the way, there's no government mandate here as to how you fix this, could say, well we'll push those missed payments to the end of the loan and we'll modify the loan, okay? Just contractually. That's reasonable. We won't buy the loan back from the bond investor. We just leave it because that makes life a little easier. Same thing with the mortgages. They would ideally like to leave those mortgage notes in these pools to back all these securities because when you buy it out, you have to buy it out at par. It's a lot of money. If you're talking about a couple months' interest payments, given how low rates are right now, Barry, that's manageable. and In fact, uh, the regulator for Fannie and Freddie just came out and said, you guys have to advance for four months and then we'll come and reimburse you. So we're starting to get some clarity on this, right? But for private investors, private mortgages, commercial mortgages, you know, multifamily, all of this stuff, if it doesn't have a government guarantee, then the bondholders will pay. The servicers get reimbursed first, by the way. If there's missed <laughs> payments, they get their fee. The bondholders basically have to wait. So that's, that's how it'll work.
1: Back of the line.
2: Back of the line. The AAAs are in front, and then the lower tranches in these deals, there tend to be several. Those are the ones who will take the pain.
1: So, Chris, let's talk a little bit about the current state of the economy. I don't think many people would deny that we are in a recession today. How bad is it And how deep and long can this last for?
2: I was on a call yesterday with a bunch of my mortgage buddies, a lot of economists, um, you know, Mark, uh, uh, Sam Catter from Freddie Mac, and, and people like this. And they really do excellent research on the demographics, if you will, of housing. And then you looked at bank rings. What were those provision numbers from JP Morgan and Wells Fargo telling us? And it's telling you that the bankers expect a pretty large wave of losses in the next couple of quarters. So when I look at GDP estimates of down 30 in the second quarter, which is what I was hearing yesterday, uh, I kind of step back as a bank analyst and I think to myself, this is going to be worse in 2008. Um, To me, I think we will have destroyed a lot of the small business service sector, that was so important as a source of marginal employment in the United States. People, you know, look at New York, Barry. The entire entertainment industry is gone. Hospitality, restaurants, all of these, you know, areas that were important for, for, not just for people generally, if they needed to find a job, or, you know, younger people who came to the city who were trying to get involved in, you know, some career. That was the first place they would look for a job. And, the, and these people have left. I, I think it's going to be very interesting to see the numbers for New York City in the next couple of quarters, because I suspect a lot of people went to live with mom and dad.
1: Mm. Anecdotally, we're hearing uh, a lot of people who have an op- a, a second place to live, either a beach house or a second property, or if they're younger, with their parents or siblings – They've, they've fled large parts of Brooklyn, half the Upper East Side and Upper West Side are supposedly empty. I, I haven't been back to the city since this started, but from what I'm hearing from people who either live or lived in the city, they are sheltering outside of Manhattan. Are you implying that that might become a permanent situation? Because people talked about that post 9-11, but we really didn't see whoever left was very quickly replaced by a younger person. Do you think this changes the dynamics of urban density and people living in cities?
2: Well, I think it's going to change the business dynamics in New York for a while, because in, you know, in 2008 and after 9-11, um, yeah, we had to hunker down, but then the economy restarted. We didn't have uh-huh. to distance from ourselves physically. We didn't have to, to deal with all of the aspects that that implies. So I think when you're still worried about vulnerable populations and you have to protect them, that means that you're going to try and let the economy restart to a degree. But I don't think you regrow these service businesses back overnight, Barry. They've been decapitalized. And even if they were helping their employees with the federal money, they still may not survive because they're going to be facing a diminished revenue stream coming, coming back. You know, what what if we have to take half the tables out of the restaurants, right?
1: Right. If people what, are you doing, go what are you to do you do in a restaurant? Broadway theater where you're shoulder to shoulder Precisely. front and back? Are they gonna are well, they gonna I sell Hamilton you know. tickets with twenty five percent of the audience? As uh seventy five percent missing?
2: We, you know, we just went through Passover and Easter, right? These are typically times when Europeans, Latin Americans would all go to New York for a week with their families. Right. They're not here now. You know? There's there's only New Yorkers in Central Park right now, and it's, it's a different scene. In fact, I've been riding my bike around the city. I go all the way down the South Prairie and back because there's no
1: traffic. How, how empty crazy. is the city compared to uh, oh. what it was like post-9-11?
2: It's more empty than that. Very little traffic, although it is slowly, slowly starting to increase. You can see that there's more people moving around. I I think this is going to be a profound economic shock to a lot of big cities that are used to trying to attract people to come in. Hmm, That's going to be a big change.
1: So we've had this enormous monetary response from the Fed. They took rates to zero. They announced they were going to add $2 trillion more in uh, lawn furniture and various uh, high yield paper. Whatever whatever they can buy, they're going to put on the balance sheets. We've also had, a, 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 at least over the short term, a, a $2 trillion fiscal stimulus. How does this response compare to what we've seen from crises in the past?
2: Well, the federal response in the 30s was large, but it, it didn't really do much. In fact, it faltered, and then World War II kind of saved us. Um, In 2008, you had the financial response, obviously, to catch some of the banks. Um, But the industry more or less cleaned up its own mess, and the economy healed itself. I mean, the thing I always remind people of, Barry, is the fact that we still have a private bond market in this country, and we have a market for different types of assets, is so important because it restarted by itself. The auto sector restarted by itself in 2009, because those were fully secured deals. But today, given the hit that Global Auto has taken, for example, and you look at sales volume estimates and everything else going forward, you know, I I think the whole credit of this industry has changed. Even the exemplars like the Toyotas and the Daimlers, nah, they've taken a hit. I think you'll see consolidation, by the way. Back to your point about M&A, definitely. Uh Because we have have too many automakers. Yeah, if we're doing 11, 12 million units next year, you're going to see M&A. That's way down uh, from the
1: post-crisis peak of about seventeen. 17 million cars yeah. in the U.S.?
2: Yeah. yeah, it went
1: down to 11, and it was
2: goosed by the Fed. You know, We were talking before about different phases. In the period after the '08 crisis, you had a lot of fringe products. You had autos, you had, you know, marketplace loans and all sorts of non-bank lending to business individuals, et cetera, et cetera, all gone, poof, gone. In fact, the subprime auto sector is going to go through the ringer now, because again, the bondholders are going to pay for the forbearance. So I think, you know, it's going to take some time to get people back in the game. You're going to see spreads stay kind of wide for a while on, on high yield securities compared to treasuries. And it's just a matter of getting everybody focused. But I'll tell you this, Barry, I think people are much better conditioned this time than they were in 08. I think people are coming back to the markets much faster than they did in 08 and 09, when nothing was happening. You remember that. Do, do, you, mean, do
1: you mean investors or consumers yeah. or both?
2: Institutional investors, vultures, uh-huh. others. I mean, we've got a, a, you know MBS fund we're getting ready to launch as soon as we have a little more clarity from Washington plain vanilla stuff, right? But still, there's opportunities out there because the markets are disrupted. People are looking to buy commercial real estate off distressed sales. They're looking huh. to buy multifamily off distressed sales, although perhaps not New York because of the rent control laws, um, but around the country, yeah, definitely. Huh.
1: I'm thinking too small. I'm, I'm looking to buy distressed sheet metal off the auto sites um, between bring a trailer and classic cars. I've seen prices fall about 10 15% over the Mm -hmm. past month. And I love the idea of buying something at a discount, but that's just me. So your first book was Inflated that looked at how debt helped build out the American dream, especially houses. I was kind of surprised by the topic of your recent book, Ford Men, From Inspiration to Enterprise. What motivated you to pivot from debt and housing to automobiles and Ford. I had always been a
2: student of Henry Ford, like many Americans, but particularly his role in the Great Depression. And so one of the things I focused on in the book was um, how Henry basically uh, started the banking crisis in 1933, before FDR took office in in March of that year. It's an extraordinary story, because he was such a character. And, and quite Wait, a crank. Did
1: you, say, did you say started the banking crisis? He,
2: he, he initiated it, yes. He, he said that he was going to take his money out of the Detroit banks. And when the governor of Michigan found out about this, he declared the bank holiday in Michigan in February of 1933. This event then rippled through the rest of the country. So by the time FDR takes office, every bank in the United States is closed and had been uh the detroit banks were really important in those days henry ford was the biggest cash depositor in the country and he ran the whole company on cash out of his pocket it was like a plantation so i got into ford you know first and foremost cuz i am a student of that that era and then i i had been a, a contributor to the washington times magazine uh inside on the news and i had written a whole series of articles about the explorer rollover which was quite a mess it was really the the beginnings of giving teeth to consumer regulation in the United States. If that had happened today, a lot of people at Ford would have gone to jail for what happened really? with those vehicles. Oh yeah, what this yeah, is the, the, the tr-
1: single vehicle rollovers with uh, uh, some of the right. SUVs. Yeah, I recall the Explorer, that. Well,
2: the Ranger and the you know the Bridgestone right. Firestone tires. Um, right. It was quite a mess.
1: Take take a a big, big vehicle. Raise it, uh, give it a short wheelbase, and uh, that is not a recipe for stability at high speeds if you have to suddenly cut the wheel.
2: No, it it didn't work. And there, you know, it was an interesting episode. But what I tried to do with Ford Men, uh, just in terms of the overall book, Barry, was remind people of the rich literature around Ford, people like John Kith, Galbraith, and many others who wrote about the family. And they were such a remarkable family. It was really the first transformational business fortune in American history, more than steel, more than these other types of uh, fortunes that have been made in the past. They made things, they made cars. But interestingly, the first were built by the Dodge brothers, because they were the first great parts makers in the United States. Both of them died in 1921 of the Spanish flu. (laughs) Had the Dodge brothers survived, the auto industry would have been dominated by them and not by General Motors and uh, a number of other players. Uh, history would have been
1: quite different. So by the time we get to something like Ford versus Ferrari, that's 30 years later? Oh, and, uh,
2: yeah, Billy, you know, Henry the Deuce, Henry Ford II had taken over, and they, they were still uh, an also-ran compared to GM. They were typically compared to Chevrolet. That's how small Ford was. Wow. Um, but they still, uh, you know, had a lot of staying power. And as I've always said, God clearly loves the Fords, despite their many sins, uh, because somehow they avoided the fault.
1: Right. All in 2009 they were the only U.S. <laughs> oh automaker Didn't need to be restructured.
2: Well, they couldn't be restructured. As I as I talk about in the book, Goldman Sachs had already helped the family take money out of the company, And if they had been restructured, then the special voting stock held by the family would have gone, and they would have lost control. So there's all these little nuances. And Goldman Sachs is a very important part of the Ford story. It was their design of the Ford Foundation when the Ford family gave most of the economics in the company to that entity and retained most of the vote in this asymmetrical uh, share transaction that Sidney Weinberg created along with the lawyers for for Edsel Ford, uh, that saved the company from the tax man. Because FDR hated Henry Ford, and he had passed legislation in Washington specifically to kill the Ford fortune. And so Goldman thwarted that intention.
1: And now the Ford Foundation is a couple of billion dollars and and still uh, still active.
2: Well, when they did the IPO for Ford after World War II, uh, the foundation was the only seller, of shares. They didn't have to raise money for the company because they had plenty of
1: money. These are the work at home abbreviated version of our favorite podcast questions. And let's just start with streaming. What are you streaming these days? What are you watching on Netflix? What are you listening to in podcasts? What's keeping you entertained? I
2: am watching old movies with my beautiful wife, Nicole, who's a recent uh, naturalized American citizen. So we're filling in some of the blanks with her. And uh, I stream a lot of music. I spend my time reading, Barry. You know, like you, I, I basically have to consume stuff all day. I watch Westworld. I watch a uh-huh. couple other things on TV. Um, but that's Give us about a couple it, of old really.
1: movie titles for, for the youngsters who may not be uh, oh, familiar with oh, it. Oh,
2: well, yeah, we just watched Boulevard uh, with Penelope Cruz, which is stunning. I, 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 I love that movie. So when you uh, say old,
1: it, you, you're, that's not really old. No, but look, Ben-Hur, uh,
2: The Agony old. and the Ecstasy, okay. uh, The Ten Commandments we just did, so we're having a lot of fun. <laughs> so, so you're
1: working your way through the 30s and 40s along with the Ford and, and the post-depression era in I your view. I view. buff
2: guys. You know, the girls <laughs> want buff, right? So they, they like Charlton. Charlton was a good-looking
1: guy. <laughs> who are your early mentors? Who helped to shape your career?
2: Oh, boy. Well, my father, first and foremost, who taught me how to write with a yellow pad and a pencil. Um, and I think um, a number of editors over the years, Terry Hauser and Carl Flock at the uh, Legislative Digest, uh, the folks at Barron's, all the editors at Barron's, Tommy Donlin, uh, I wrote many editorials for him. So and as a writer, those were the people who really pounded on me and said, you know, editing builds character, right? <laughs> you, you know all about that, working with Bloomberg as much as you have. Uh, I I have to tell you,
1: I wrote one editorial for Barron's called A Memo Found on the Street that I thought was brilliant when I handed it in to Tom Donlin, It was 1,600 words, and mm. he showed me how to take a scalpel and remove everything that wasn't lean sinew, and what came out of that was 700 tight words, and he blew me away as to how strong... A good editor can make your writing.:
2: Oh no, that's quite right. That's quite right. Um, and you know, the other people in the financial markets, I've had so many teachers, uh, Alan Boyce, who taught me about mortgage servicing rights, uh, the guys at Bear, uh, who taught me how to do deals. You learn how to do deals by working on deals late at night. <laughs> Um, you, you mentioned
1: so, you mentioned reading. Let's talk about your favorite books. What books uh, have you been staying occupied with during this uh, lockdown?
2: I just finished Dark Towers about Deutsche Bank, as you can imagine. Mm-hmm. Uh, David Enrich, Dave, fabulous yep. book.
1: He um, wrote the book on just, uh, on the lab, on the Libor scandal. The
2: Libor scandal talks a lot about President Trump and and how he survived. The guy's got amazing grit, the fact that he was able to bluff his way uh, through all those situations. You've got to hand it to
1: him. Nine Lives, for sure.
2: Oh my Give us gosh. another title. Uh, you know, I, there are a lot of books I want to read, I just don't have time. I've been reading legal documents for the past three weeks, <laughs> trying to well, get a uh, liquidity facility in place for the independent mortgage banks in Washington. So that's taken a lot of my time. And then, What's you know, the book on I the top banks, of your wish gotta, list? Oh, my. Well, I want to go through George Moore's book on uh, banking. I, uh, I desperately want to go back and reread uh, some of my George Orwell, because uh, it's very <laughs> timely now. To uh, the and least. then, you know, there were a couple of other things that I, I have on the, the pile. Uh, I did go through Red Notice, Bill Browder's book about Russia. Recently. I heard that was, that was really interesting. Oh, my God. You'll never go to Russia, Barry, after you read that book.
1: <laughs> my my but, brother-in-law you know. used to be general counsel for Amoco. Uh, that little BP Amoco deal was, was his doing. And yes. Amoco had relationships with with uh, many of the Russian oil companies and the Russian government. And that was pretty much his response. Like, so, so what's your take on Russia? He goes, don't ever go there. I'm like, okay. Right. Although I've been right. to well, St. I'm, Petersburg, so I really – I guess I uh, violated that. Um, What sort of advice would you give a millennial who is interested in a career in banking?
2: Go work for a small bank. Learn as much as you can about how the bank operates, particularly the back. You, You wanna learn how they do everything from an operations perspective, and then you're gonna have a lot of value.
1: And our final question, what do you know about the world of banking today that you wish you knew 30 years or so ago when you were first getting started?
2: I I think the evolution of banks uh, in the United States away from business lending to uh, focusing on mostly housing-related, two-thirds of U.S. banks today, Barry, have housing exposure one way or another, commercial real estate. So it's become really, really heavy on the real estate side. And I guess that's as, as you would expect, because most companies just go to the capital markets. They don't have to go to a bank. So that's a big change.
1: We have been speaking with Christopher Whalen. He is the chairman of Whalen Global Advisors and author of several books, most recently, Ford men, from inspiration to enterprise. If you enjoy this conversation, well, look up or down an inch on Apple, iTunes, Spotify, Overcast, wherever your fun or podcasts are found, and you can see any of the previous 300-and-something conversations we've had over the past five and a half years. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at Podcast at bloomberg.net. You can follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. Check out my daily column on... Ritholtz.com or see my weekly Bloomberg column at Bloomberg.com opinion. I would be remiss if I did not thank the crack staff that helps put this conversation together each week. Atika Valbrun is our product supervisor. Michael Boyle is our producer. Charlie Vollmer is my audio engineer and Michael Batnick is my head of research. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio.